Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And we are here now on Conspiracy Normal, back after two weeks. It's your co-host Adam Sane, and of course, you just called yourself the co-host. I'm the I'm the host. <laughs> You're the co-host. And My name's Q. Adam Sane. All right, I'm the co-host Luke Reed, and that's <laughs> the host Sane. Adam Sane. And Chris is back. Wrong. It's Jeffrey Stiz. Okay, Jeffrey Stiz. Yeah, that's Chris, everybody. He, he uh, decided he wanted to come back. He's going to take on a more active role and uh, be uh, be speaking on air now. So so now y'all got to deal with my voice. What now? He's, yeah, he's going right. to pour us cups of coffee. <laughs> yeah, wear, the, wear a stewardess outfit with a tutu and bring us cups of coffee. <laughs> and so, somehow, man, she's still fall asleep on the bed. That's right. Yeah, so, Luke, uh, how you been, man? Pretty darn good, dude. I'm uh, in a pretty good mood today. Had a great oh, day. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That is most excellent to hear. Uh, we saw an interesting movie yesterday. Yes. Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. What'd you think of it? It's phenomenal, dude. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean... It was insane. It really was. insanely was. good. I had the same feeling that I had when I went to see uh, Tree... When I saw Tree of Life which is another kind of deep, kind of spiritual movie. 
And this one was really the same way. Uh, I don't think I've quite seen a movie that uh, could move through different time periods and different stories as easily as that one. Right. And uh, right. the most minuscule detail connected all of those people. Right. Not just the birthmark or whatever, but, you know, just uh, one character couldn't have been there without the one from the past. And then sure. that one affected the one from the, fu the future. It's just it, really intricate. And there were some strange, like, reincarnation things going on in it, too. Mm-hmm. Like everybody was, or you had the same actors portraying different, uh, yeah. different characters. Like and, Tom Hanks was portraying like what seven different characters yeah. in the course of the movie, yeah, something yeah. like that. And one of one of the main points that I get out of it is like you know no matter what the race or the sexual orientation or whatever, is that everybody's connected somehow, and it, uh, you know karma is going to come back to you and how you treat another person. Yeah. And, and even the smallest action that you take, you know, down the line could make a huge difference. Like, just the smallest little thing could change the world, you know? That's definitely one I'm going to have to sit down and watch again. Yeah. Because I think that there's things that I just did not catch uh, yeah. the it, first time. It's multi-level. There's just there's multiple levels of meaning going on and everything. It was just it was great. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, for especially for um, the producers and directors of it, the last thing they did was Speed Racer. <laughs> I uh, I was I I went in really didn't know what to expect out of this movie. Some people had told me, you know, oh, it's a decent movie or wait for video. I read some reviews where people said they they walked out, so I thought oh, it's probably not. There's something wrong. Probably with those not people. that great. <laughs> and I could tell you, you know, we 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 were making some comments and such you know, like towards the beginning of the movie. Uh, just you know, there's some interesting scenes, but. Uh, later on, I think this Luke and I were both just like totally enthralled by it. Yeah, um, we we were like we just completely silent towards yeah. the, towards the end of the movie. Right, and, and it's definitely one of those ones that like a good movie I think will will stay with you, and or like or anything like any media kind I, of thing. After, after the show was over, like I literally texted like five, six different people and told them to go watch it. To tell them to go see yeah. it. And yeah. then, you know, and then some people we talked to even just said, "Oh, it was okay, you know. This it was just so-so." Like, well, what are you talking yeah, about? <laughs> I thought it was okay. It was okay. It was I a mean, little hard to follow. Whatever. I couldn't pay attention to it. It, it is a little disconcerting when you when you're jumping from time period to time period, but uh once you get used to that, yeah, you see how each um, it, it becomes just a fluid. It's just like that's all one event going on. Yeah, right. Even though it's jumping in time, it's jumping in, and, and in they, characters. And they all at first they have nothing to do with each other, and then toward the yeah. end of all of their separate stories, it all combines at the end. And yeah, so it's it's a really. Of course, it is based on a book, but it's a really genius movie. Mm -hmm. I think that anybody would, you know, definitely go see it. And I had no problem deciphering the language. Yeah, me neither. And the, like the real, <laughs> yeah. like far futuristic, post-apocalyptic world. They were using the kind of a Cajun type accent. That's what yeah. it reminded me of. Yeah. So it's like really just kind of strangely, uh, strangely like broken and like reverse English almost. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. So, but. Uh, Anyway, tonight we have a guest. His name is Chris White, and uh, we'll be getting him on here shortly. Uh, he has a video that he put out. It's about three hours and ten minutes long, 
And uh, Chris, I believe you watched some of it today. I did. Um, it's on Ancient Aliens Debunked. And Luke, I know that's like your favorite show ever. Mm -mm. So that's incorrect. Oh no, that's my favorite. Not? My favorite show is Jersey Shore. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. True. We didn't see that one coming. True. <laughs> true. But 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 now that Jersey Shore probably isn't going to have any more reruns since it's destroyed. <laughs> it's not destroyed. Ancient Aliens is probably your favorite show. It's not destroyed. You didn't hear that? With the hurricane actually didn't hit the Jersey Shore house. Oh it, yeah, it spared the Jersey it, Shore it, house. It destroyed everything around it. Well, I guess God has a sense of humor. Then. <laughs> So Snooky will be okay. The geoengineers have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, you have some interesting thoughts about Hurricane Sandy, and maybe after we interview, the interview will go on and talk about that a little bit before we go. So, uh, but uh, we're gonna go ahead and bring Chris White on, and we will be back on Conspiranormal. Okay, and we're back on Conspiranormal, and this is my co-host Luke Reed. All right, and producer Chris back here on the mic. Yep. I'm here. All right. Tonight we have a special guest. His name is Chris White. He has uh, been very instrumental in uh, helping me with uh, getting this podcast started. He's been doing this since, I believe, about uh, the Paleolithic age. <laughs> and uh, he's uh, been a good friend of mine. And um, really just want to bring him on because he has a new video out. Uh, it is, as he styles them, a debunkumentary that is about ancient aliens debunked. Uh, Chris, we want to welcome you to uh, Conspire Normal. Adam, it's good to be here. Uh, I'm always always good to talk to you, and it's good to hear, uh, good to meet Luke and Chris. So I'm excited about uh, doing the show. Good to meet you. Interesting to uh, hear what you have to say. Yeah, you guys are you guys uh, fans of Ancient Aliens Debunked or have you ever? I mean, excuse me, Ancient Aliens, not the not the debunkumentary, I, but I am a fan, but don't necessarily agree with every standpoint. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, hey, yeah, I I agree. I was a fan and and still am a fan of the show. I think there it's probably one of the uh, um, most amazing editing jobs uh, on on the planet. They, they do such a good job with it. But uh, but yeah, sorry. Luke has a picture of himself with Zuccolo's hair. That's how much of a yeah, fan it yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, uh, just uh, if you can kind of, uh, you, since uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with you, uh, can you kind of bring everybody up to speed on who you are, uh, the the projects that you've done and been involved with, and also how that you got interested in uh, debunking ancient aliens? Sure thing. Well, um I, like a lot of folks, w really interested in conspiracy topics, paranormal topics. I grew up on Coast to Coast AM, like almost l literally grew up on Coast to Coast AM, and always sort of leaned that direction with a lot of different topics. And that actually affected me, my, my whatever form of faith I, I had, about when I was 19, 18, 19, just out of high school, I got really into the ancient astronaut theory with uh, Sitchin's books and things like that, and kind of, kind of went towards the new age mostly in my, at least in my sort of philosophy and 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 everything else. And uh, David Icke actually was pretty instrumental in that too. So, and, and I guess in in a lot of ways I am glad for taking that road because I learned a lot of things that are true. I mean, in the conspiracy world, I mean, it definitely are true. Not, but I also learned a lot of things were not true. And so over the years, I, I basically, as I started to see little problems with those things that weren't true in the conspiracy world, um, I 
basically was just trying to early on just tell some of the other people in the conspiracy world, hey, there's a problem with this thing and that thing. And I started a, a small radio show. I'm still doing it. Nowhere to run. And uh, it started out basically just trying to tell other conspiracy people that there was uh, some stuff that was wrong, particularly at that time, the idea that Sitchin was wrong was something that was a, a really a early thing. Zechariah Sitchin was sort of the guy who wrote, basically wrote the book with, um, uh, along with people like Von Daniken on the ancient astronaut theory, which uh, the ancient alien show is based on. Yeah, the 12th planet and all that. Yeah, the 12th planet. The particular one I read was, I think, Stairway to Heaven. But um, anyway, so, so that's kind of where I um, basically... Everything I've been doing since then is, is, is kind of like apologetics, but it's, it's mostly just trying to reach back into the new age and the conspiracy world where I am to a degree, at least in the conspiracy world and where I was in the new age, and just try to show people that some of the things, the major things that they're being told are wrong and that they're easily disproved. So that's sort of the reason why I did Ancient Aliens Debunked. Um, along the way, the ancient astronaut theory, when people would ask questions about it i didn't really have a good place to point them to to say hey you know there these are the issues and the problems with it and so um that's why i decided that it kind of needed an easy button somewhere somebody to just do a comprehensive look at the ancient astronaut theory and and debunk it and i didn't really go into it expecting to be so naturalistic that is like oh you know i i, I take a real um, not very supernatural view in a lot of the things like how certain monuments were built. I, sure. I didn't really go into it like that. I actually went into it with a, you know, hey, if it's Nephilim or whatever that built this, then that's what it is. You know, let's just figure out how it was built and then kind of draw our conclusions after that. But after doing the research over the course of a year, I had a lot of help and um, and it just kept coming up that this was something that uh, that ever, there was logical explanations for almost every major thing that we looked into with the ancient aliens situation uh yeah you've gotten a lot of hits on it um it's been uh and it's kind of been a roller coaster ride for you i understand since you've you've released it yeah it's been great um i think the the main upload has got uh just about five hundred and forty thousand views and there's another seventy thousand view one so it's it's well over six hundred thousand views and just the ones that i have on my youtube page but there are there are people, other people have uploads and different things, so it's it's far and away the the it's only been out for a month, so it's just like as far as the stuff I've done, it's far and away better than than anything, which is great. That's what I was hoping for. I want to, this to get to all the people that need to hear it, and that's really been my my prayer for it is that the people that were was like I was that my faith was totally destroyed because I believe that aliens created us and, you know, I knew that now, so I didn't need this rest of it. The, the main thing is to get to those people. So it's been a, it's been a, a good thing. I hope it, uh, hope it continues to do that for a while. Well, Chris, let me ask you, um, what are some of the basic tenets of the ancient astronaut theory? Um, but, sure. The basic tenets would be that uh, an extraterrestrial Mm, some extraterrestrials came here in the ancient past and they did a number of things. They left evidence of that visitation in things like uh, um, artifacts. They left evidence in things like um, building sites, megalithic sites or archaeology and stuff like that. They, they left, they, they would have, according to this theory, they would have left evidence 
in the minds of people that wrote down these ancient texts. So the ancient texts, they would say, are speaking of them. And a number of other things, cave art and whatever. That's the basic premise is that, they, that ancient aliens came here and they left evidence. Now, it goes a lot of different angles after that. One could say that a foundational belief in the ancient astronaut theory was that aliens genetically modified um, ancient mankind like Neanderthal and, and, and sort of tweaked their DNA to make them intelligent. That's also a pretty normal tenet of the ancient astronaut theory, but it's by no means held by everyone that believes in the ancient astronaut theory. And there are a lot of divergent views within that. So, But the basic thing is that they came here, they left evidence. Sure. And Giorgio Tsoukalos grew some hair. And Giorgio Tsoukalos is an <laughs> integral part of that. That uh, yeah. yeah. He's a big proponent of Von Daniken. Uh, not Von Daniken, but uh, Sitchin, actually. Sitchin and Von Daniken. I think yeah. that he actually was a part of Von Daniken's, like... Um, there's pictures of 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 Sukulos with von Daniken really really early on i think that they he he's been a part of like his i don't know i don't i don't know what kind of organization von Daniken set up but i think Sukulos was a part of it early on so they're 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 joined at the hip Sukulos and von Daniken somehow some, or another some kind of space cult yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well let me ask you before we get to some of the spiritual um ramifications of it and some of the things that you've debunked um in those things, um, what did you start with um, in the film? The film starts with the megalithic stuff, so Pumapunku, the pyramids, Baalback, Incan sites, Easter Island. Uh, so that's the first stuff. The second one is ancient artifacts, and the last is texts. So what are the claims that are being made about the megaliths, and what do you debunk about? What, uh, what are you using to debunk them? Well, with the megaliths, it's mostly that these stones are too big for us to move, these stones are impossible for us to cut, these stones are too perfectly this or that, those kind of things. And so what I did a lot of is researching ancient stone-cutting techniques, which I found to be incredibly boring, actually, because... Um, yeah. The, they are really, really similar. In fact, I think somebody could make a pretty odd case that the stone-cutting techniques at Pumapunku and the pyramids and the, well, obviously the Incan sites in Pumapunku, but, uh, and Easter Island, those, those three, for instance, totally diverse cultures used almost identical, identical stone-cutting techniques. Um, and it's pretty normal stuff. Like, instead, like, of making... Ancient aliens gives the impression that if they're going to make a flat-surfaced rock, and it, uh, you need like a laser or a granite, you know, diamond-tipped granite saw or something like that. When in reality, reality to make flat-surfaced monuments, it's one of the most commonly done things in the ancient world. They would do a number of things. One one method was using um, hard pounding stones. That's harder than the rock you're pounding. So all you have to do is find they wouldn't know the Mohs scale. But, would, for example, in granite, you would be working with diorite. And you would use these pounding stones. You would pound out these troughs. You would have lots of workers, generally speaking. And they would pound for a long time. That's one thing I think people forget is that they had a lot of time on their hands. And uh, they would create these troughs. And they would be kind of wavy where every where every worker was standing and they would come by and basically sand it, grind it down with, with these grinding stones, 
using sand as the abrasive. Sand has like these particles in it that are so hard that when you rub it against uh, any rock, in fact, the harder the rock, the better it is to, the easier it is to polish, it would create these flat surfaces. We see pictures of this in the hieroglyphics. We see, you know, there's archaeological evidence all over the quarries. They could split rocks a number of ways. One interesting way that they did in Pumapunku and at uh, and in Egypt is they would drill these sort of small rectangular holes, and they would drill, like, you know, as many of them as they wanted in a straight line. And then they would put these uh, wooden wedges that were saturated with water into each one. They would pound them in with a hammer. And then the wood, be, what was saturated, would dry and expand and it would, and it would, all of them at the same time would crack uh, the uh, the the granite or whatever. So it would actually be a great way to to crack it off. And then, of course, they would come behind that and sand it. But there's any number of ways. The the way they moved it, the blocks in Egypt was really really simple. They used wooden sleds. These sleds are found all over Egypt. There's pictures of them using these sleds. They use sleds because wheels would sink into the sand. Um, so I talked a lot about the pyramids, and and I proposed a theory that um, I think is just one of the most amazing things, especially being so interested in the pyramids since a young age and have heard just about every crazy theory and believed it uh, about the pyramids. And this one is just brilliant. It's a guy named Jean-Pierre Houdin. He's a French architect. It's a really recent theory, but it is fast gaining acceptance, acceptance not just in the scholarly community, but in the uh, pop community as well. So I presented the case of Jean-Pierre's internal ramp theory, as well as how he views the Grand Gallery being essentially a counterweight system to lift the, the granite blocks for the roof supports of the King's Chamber. Any, any number of things we, we could talk about uh, with, the, with the building sites and the megalithic sites, but, um, but there was, there's a lot to know there. Uh, Baalbek was an interesting one, too. Uh, yeah. You've got a lot of flack on that one, uh, I believe. Yeah, Baalbek is one that I personally wanted to do a really good job with because it's one that I've always heard stuff about. It was like it's the go-to thing for the ancient astronaut theory. Um, and so basically it works like this. People say, oh, the, you know, there's an ancient temple at Baalbek. It's an ancient Canaanite temple, and they'll say it's like whatever, 9,000 years old or whatever. And you're like, okay, whatever, but... They, they'll tell you that the big platform at Baalbek is that old Canaanite temple. But nobody anywhere ever, it, an archaeologist would buy that because they know that that temple actually exists five meters below that, uh, that platform. It's a T-shaped terrace. It's completely, totally observable. And it's not an ancient platform. It's an old school, basically, altar uh, to Baal. And what's built around it is unmistakably Roman. And so there's a sort of misdirection with Baalbek. They, they, if you're listening to somebody present to you the, the general ancient astronaut Baalbek version of history, they'll be like, there is an ancient platform, and it is, you know, the, the experts say it's Roman, but we know it's ancient. And what they're telling you is true. There is an ancient, there is an ancient altar there, and, and, it, right. and all the stuff was built around it. But they're not letting you know that what you're seeing in that in that thing is is not uh, is not the ancient platform. I could go into detail because usually the ancient aliens does this all the time. They're focusing in on this big square platform and they want you to believe it's the place where rockets lifted off and whatever at Baalbek. But in reality, the the place they're actually talking about is a part of the Temple of Jupiter, which is a small rectangle to the uh, western side, and they're not even showing it <laughs> usually. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of stuff about Baalbek, but. Uh, you know, Chris, that's one thing that I've never, um, especially about Sitchin, that I've never really understood is is that he talks a lot about rockets. 
and he supposedly we're talking about a um, a seafaring, not a seafaring, but a spacefaring civilization, and um, supposedly they're they're so advanced that they're still using rockets. <laughs> it just exactly. never really made much sense to me. Yeah, they're going through space in 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 combustion combustion engines yeah and you know no physicist would say interstellar travel is possible with with you know combustion engines but i would say that even worse than that is is the stuff that he drew out that you know at that at that time was so clearly you know 1970s 80s technology yeah that Six, is just, 60s even yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's just so ridiculous to see it now. And the and the famous thing that I always saw Sitchin, you know, he he produced this ancient artifact that was uh, this guy in a rocket ship, right? And you know, the the archaeologists don't know what to do with it because it's clearly a guy in a rocket ship, and he's wearing like a classic, you know, old school NASA spacesuit. And <laughs> and it's it's funny because that that artifact is a total fake. I mean, it's plaster of Paris. I've got yeah, I show in the in the film. The, the Turkish uh, curator of the museum saying it's it's 20 years old it's plaster of Paris so but I mean forever I don't know anybody really talking about that that this thing is like been pranced around for you know a couple decades several decades as a, a genuine artifact showing you know ancient aliens but uh, it, so, could, it could be time travelers you never know yeah there could be time travelers but uh, you'd have to get past a few paradoxes there I'm still not sure that the uh, that uh yeah so um what what do you what do you think that uh would be their point of pushing this false information well i mean it depends on the person and the writer i think a lot of the, the modern day ancient astronaut theory people like the people on the show and stuff like that they're just genuine believers they're like a lot of every, you know everybody else they they just believe it and they believe that what they have been presented as scientific truth is in fact true they haven't really checked it out or whatever but the people that started a lot of this stuff i don't give them as much slack particularly Sitchin, i von daniken i mean okay i i, I could talk more about him but he, he's been convicted of all kinds of bad stuff but right, yeah. i didn't go into yeah. any of that in the film i just figured it wasn't uh wasn't the direction i wanted to go but Sitchin, that guy I don't think after reviewing all the different mistakes, quote unquote, he makes, I just don't think that guy was anything except for a knowing misinformer. Now, whether he did that to because he knew this would make a lot of money, the guy sold millions and millions of books. That's just as good as motivation as any. Right. But but the way that he did it presumes that he knew that he was lying. I don't see any other. I, I think Sitchin was was eyes wide open deceiving people. And with this, because and he knew that he couldn't be busted because these the way that the state of Sumerian um, uh, scholarship at the time was was that it really wasn't in a position to to for the for the general public to know anything about it. So it was yeah. going to take a few decades for anybody to call him out. Right. <clears throat> so yeah, it seems to be that. Um... Either Sitchin was just he really believed what he was doing, or it was more of a just a a sham that he was doing possibly yeah, the right books. It seems to me there's there's a lot of just far stretched things in there, especially the stuff dealing with Nibiru. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, the twelfth planet. Yeah. To, yeah. to answer your question a little bit more about why or motivations, if we presume that it, this was malicious, um, I would say that 
motivations can be all over the board with this because, like I said, this this worked really well with me in getting me to become, uh, you know, uh, well, certainly anti-God, anti, um, anti, you know, anything to do with God or the Bible, and it made me uh, obviously into whatever the alternative was, thank God I didn't go too far in it, but the new age is, you know, a doorway to the occult and I could have done all kinds of different stuff. I think that it's just like any other thing that Satan does. He would like, he would like anything that, that works to get people to do that. And so this could just be another one of those things that he uses to get people to be deceived and throw away their faith. And it's a particularly good one. So, and it's a powerful one. So I think that's why it, it, it works. Uh, I could go a little bit more conspiratorial on that. I I, th I actually think it's probably a little more conspiratorial, um, but I think the motivations are certainly negative. I think that the people that do, in fact, if there is such a group that organizes disinformation, that the disinformation that is organized is always particularly anti-Christian. And I wouldn't doubt for one minute if the if the stories of Sitchin that people say that have had dealings with him. Um, that he is a a knowing misinformant or was a knowing misinformant and that he was uh, involved in some of these dark type rituals and stuff like that, I wouldn't be at all surprised. You know, the ancient a astronaut theory is just like the New Age in that it proposes essentially Luciferianism. It, it, it gets you to subconsciously, uh, um, how to say, venerate Lucifer. Because in this case, the ancient... The, the idea is that, that uh, since aliens genetically modified mankind, they, they always tie it back to the Garden of Eden. And they say, well, this is, the Garden of Eden is actually a picture of the ancient astronaut theory. And they say that, that Satan or Lucifer, he just wanted to, to give us wisdom. He wanted to, to, to genetically essentially bring us into our, make us who we are. He wanted to give, you know, change our DNA to, from Neanderthal to, to who we are. He is, in a lot of ways, if, if, that, if that holds true, our creator. And, and if you look at it in that lens, then the person who didn't want, the evil group of aliens that the ancient astronaut theory proposes that God is, he's a, in the Bible, is just a picture of an evil alien group that hates us and wanted us to be in the dark. So Yahweh is the evil, terrible uh, representation in the Bible, and, and Lucifer was just wanted us to be free and, and have a good time. The New Age does exactly the same thing, um, and and I, I mean I could go into a lot of different areas that do this with different uh, techniques um, to essentially get you to to venerate Lucifer as the end goal. Helena Blavatsky sold it without the ancient astronaut theory or whatever, but that was that was the same conclusion that she came to as well that. That you know, we just he just wanted us to be enlightened, and you know, Yahweh didn't want us to be in, enlightened, but Lucifer did. So it's a subconscious thing, and I don't want to sell it too strongly that that's the reason why this happened. But I don't think it's a terrible coincidence that the production company of of uh, the of this show is called Prometheus, yeah. because Prometheus was the light bringer who gave us the knowledge and the wisdom and everything else. So it's and consistent. Chris, too, um, you know what you're talking about there is um is gnosticism right it is um not agnosticism but gnosticism as in from the greek word gnosis which means knowledge and one of the things that i hear uh from some ancient astronaut theorists like uh von daniken uh i've heard georgia sukla say this before is hey 
and this is in inter other interviews, um, maybe apart from that show, but say something like, well, you know, maybe aliens came down and created us, but I still believe that there is a God and he's above all the aliens mm -hmm. or he's above them um, in, super, in, a, in, a, in his own supernatural universe. And that that is also something that the Gnostics believe too, is that they believe that there was the creator God uh, that they equated with Yahweh, as you said, and then there was the that there was the higher God or the, the God of the goddess of knowledge. And you had all these different aeons that we, you know, Gnosticism is a pretty difficult belief. Mm -hmm, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's so much to it, but um, it seems to me like you would equate the God that created the world with the aliens. And then the God that they talk about as being the God that's out there. Um, that seems to be something that's that's interests me with that their viewpoint uh, that 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 goes back to Gnosticism as well. Yeah, whenever they allegorize anything with the Bible, God of the the God of the Bible is always an evil alien. He's 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 always somebody that is doing something bad. But I know what you're saying. And Gnosticism is 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 like that. But you know, Gnosticism kind of morphed and became a whole lot of different versions of the New Age. Yeah. And the New Age does all kinds of the, that exact same thing, except they have a different take. You know, even the the psychedelic community does the same thing. Oh, the Tree of Life was really a mushroom, and you know, it, the psychedelic experience was what the garden. You know, the, the the tree in the garden was actually a good thing. You know, we became enlightened once we ate it. You know, and so whoever didn't want us to have that, the Bible is therefore a picture of a God that didn't want us to have the mushrooms and be enlightened and the big mean God. You know, versus the God who wants us to have mushrooms and be in, you know. So it's the same thing. It does it a million different ways. And it really started with Blavatsky uh, in her version of that. And, she, of course, her quotes are stuff like, you know, the one true God is, is uh, you know, Satan and, and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and I think, too, um, Gnosticism goes down to the, to the, to the present day with uh, Freemasonry um, and people like Blavatsky. Um, Manly P. Hall, those those people, as I'm sure you're familiar with them. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, but I kind of want to take it to uh, a little bit back to the film. Uh, uh, there's some interesting things that you do in the film. Uh, one of those evidences, and this is a big evidence that they have, is the Mayan. I believe it's like a funeral. It's a it's a sarcophagus lid, I think. Yep, mm -hmm. and it shows supposedly shows the guy in the rocket ship. There we go with the rockets again, right? And, and he's you know got all his levers and stuff. And and you do a very good job of saying that no, this is a symbolic representation of their religion. And then also too the the uh, figurines that were found. I can't remember the name of the tribe. I believe it's South America. That, yeah, uh, they say well, they say is the jet. Like that's the jet aircraft, and they actually made a model of it that they could, that they could fly, and uh, that those are also symbolic representations. You can kind of go into that. Sure. Well, the Mayan symbols, and when you're when you're when you're trying to say, okay, no, no, this isn't a rocket. This is something symbolic. That's too easy of a thing to do with anything, you know. But I think what the what you when you're trying to say something is symbolic, the best way that you can demonstrate that to somebody is to show them their consistent use of those symbols 
in the different contexts and stuff. You can show them why, for example, in this case, Mayan, uh, how do you say, Mayanists, you know, they know what these symbols are because they are so consistently used. They are referred to in their writings and things like that. So, um, so for in this case, this is a picture of what they say is uh, uh, King Putkal taking off in a rocket, but. But in the, the what they say the hull of the rocket is is one of the most consistent things in Mayan art. It's the so-called world tree, and the world tree had a very definite, constantly used, uh, consistently used uh, uh, symbol symbolism, which is that the the branches of it reached into the heavens. Okay, so maybe that's ancient astronaut. But wait, the roots reached into the underworld. And it was used as sort of a, a symbol to that passage between and, and the middle part was the earth. And that's where, in this case, they would draw the so-called vision serpent who they believed lived in the middle of the earth. And anyway, to make a long story short, this is a picture of Pakal descending into the underworld because, of course, he's died. And they have a very rich view of the underworld. The Mayan underworld is such a weird thing because it's so grotesque. And, and every time they have pictures of the underworld, it's like these, these people with skeletons with half flesh falling off their, their bodies. It was a terrible, terrible place to be. But yet that, that was a part of their cosmology, that you went into the underworld after you died. And that it was potentially possible for you to come out of the underworld at some point. Um, but, the, but the point I guess I'm trying to make is that his descent into the underworld is – on the world tree is very, very, very well known what the, what that is, yeah. um, and he's actually writing something that you know they just say is a bunch of essentially nonsense. Uh, but it's it's what it's the sun. It's the what they call the sun monster, and uh, he's essentially writing it into the underworld. The idea was that the sun, as it set, it went into the underworld. The Egyptians had a similar belief that when the sun set at night it actually went into the underworld for half the night or for the whole night and then came out of the underworld during the day and the minds believe the same thing so so Pakal's writing under that and so anyway there's a lot of stuff like that to show that these symbols are very very consistently used and they they are this is being used to represent him going into the underworld not flying a rocket ship besides all the logical problems of it, this being like a literal pictorial picture of a rocket ship because it's like a you know, it's like a bicycle or something. You know, it didn't even have any like windows, <laughs> and he's supposed to be in outer space or whatever. Like on this, you know, maybe like a good example would be like one of those Star Wars. What do they call those flying things in Star Wars? Anyway, the flyers. Anyway, never mind. Um, and the other stuff, the Tolima fighter jets. That's a similar thing. Yeah. These these are like little golden that they say are jet airplanes, and some of them look a little airplaney. But at the same time, the other, let's say, 95% of these things are obviously fish and, and birds and other animals and frogs and so on and so <clears> forth. And these very, very small percentage are a little more ambiguous. And it's not as though the other 95% are like exact representations of these animals. They're, they're crazy two-headed, three-headed things with fins all over the place. and just. But, but yet they're close enough that we know, okay, that's a crazy frog that they've done in these cases they 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 may look more like jet airplanes or whatever but they still have eyes and teeth and and fins and stuff they're obviously supposed to be representing uh something uh, like the other ones are they all have vertical tails and that's why they say they're planes uh, but fish have vertical tails and i demonstrate uh i think conclusively to a degree anyway that that some of them are supposed to be representing different species of fish and these are these figurines do have several species of fish this was something that i used to believe very uh, much these fighter jets i thought well that proves it you know 
So, uh, so anyway, there's there's that kind of stuff. The same kind of thing with the Egyptian light bulb, the yeah. supposed hieroglyphic of of a light bulb in, in Egyptian, an Egyptian tomb at Dendera, and that's just a really really standard thing that the Egyptians did. It was the symbols. Once you know what they are, then it's clear what 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 you're looking at. But it's one of these things that something like that is going to take somebody a long time to figure out. It's just you, you got to know, you know, when I did research for this, I mean, especially the Egyptian light bulb thing, it, it took a lot of learning about Egyptian mythology in order to see what was going on there. And your average person isn't going to do that. They're just going to say, well, it's a, uh, you know, that's a light bulb. But in reality, these these uh, these images are very, very precise as to what they thought that they were. Yeah. And in the, the case of the Egyptians, that is uh, the lotus flower, I believe. And that has something to do with. Uh, the Egyptian creation story, I think. Yeah, it's Egyptian creation story. It's a lotus flower. Out of the lotus flower is springing a snake. The god Atum was the first god that uh, arose from the primordial uh, lotus, and he arises out of a bubble of air. It's cons- consistently referred to that the universe is in a bubble of air. So the universe rises out of the lotus flower. The first god that come out is Atum, represented by a snake. This is this is a variation of it. It's seen a lot of different other places in Egypt. Uh, Nun, the the goddess of of the waters, is lifting out with her art, outstretched hands and uh, these the different universes. Um, and I could go into more detail, but it's really really normal and consistent. There's three things that kind of stood out to me uh, in the ancient alien series that I can remember right now, and one of them was the sun gate of Ra. And I'm, I'm not really um, attributing any kind of like alien you know contact with that. I just thought that that was that was really uh, interesting. It could serve as a gateway to, uh, you know, some, some other beings, either spiritual or alien. Um, and an, another thing was... I'm trying to look that up online, the sun, the sun Gate of Ra. And what am I looking for here? Sun Gate of Ra. Uh, it's, a, it's a big stone gateway that's got a couple slots for some kind of what looks like a stone that fit in there. Kind of like the sun disk in uh, in South America, Peru, I think it was. Like there's the cliff with the doorway and the, and the slot for the sun disk to go on the side. Okay. I'm not seeing it. If you can, uh, if you've got a link to it. Uh, but anyway, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, well, well, yeah, that, that was another one anyway, is, is the one in... Uh, I can't believe you can't find that. That's a pretty common picture. Sungate uh, of Ra. I mean, the, the yeah. Is there uh, a special other name for it? I, I'm not sure. I have to. I guess I have to do some research and find out the the real name of it. Uh, that's what I heard it was called. But um, another one, like I was saying, was the the gateway in Peru that the shamans were walking into, and it has like a a slot cut out in the rock for the the golden disc to go into. I thought that was. Uh, you know, something really caught my interest. And uh, the third thing was the text from Japan that actually, like, depict a spaceship, like, in the text. Did you see that episode? Um, I think I've seen the spaceship in Japan thing. Um, I would know it if I saw it. I'm trying to look for that one. Um, I wish I could see these uh, particular ones because I know, I think I know what you're talking about on, on a few of them. But um, unfortunately, if you can, if you can maybe, if you, if you're, do you have a computer next to you? It, I well, I'm, I'm not, di- I'm not directly next to it. Uh, Adam is. <laughs> yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, actually, that's interesting that uh, Luke brings that up, even though we can't find that one. But uh, 
you do discuss the Vimanas, which I think is something that's similar to what Luke is talking about. Right. I talk about Vimanas and the the different um, things. Let me talk real quickly about about uh, the the Peru thing, for, for instance. Yeah. I, I wish I could see exactly what you're talking about as far as this disc being put in it. Are you, are you talking perhaps about Puma Punku and the the gate that has Viracocha on the middle of it and sort of like a uh, it's basically a standalone gate uh, Puma Punku? Yeah, yeah, I think that it's a it's just a big uh, stone just square looking gate and it's got a couple slots on each side yeah, of the gate. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. That, that's a, yeah, I know exactly what that is. Um, that's that's actually depicting Viracocha on the top. That gate is part of the Pumapunku complex at Tiwanaku. Um, I read a lot of information about about Pumapunku in this in this gate and all, all the rest of it. These these glyphs on there are really consistently used uh, glyphs of a culture that was uh, Andean culture called well, the name of the glyphs are Yayamama. They're they're the way that they did this, it, what they did at these temples is really well known. Um, in fact, Puma Punku was really constructed to be a facade. In, in a lot of ways, when, when you look at Puma Punku, they, they actually never completed like, or never intended to complete like an entire back half of this thing. It's kind of, it was all sort of like, um, you ever been to like, like Disney World or something like that, where they have like the, the you know, the the buildings that only have the front facades right, yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Right, right, right. It, it was supposed to give this this feeling of awe and stuff like that. Now, the, the temples at Tiwanaku were, were a little more like that. The, the big gates and things like that at Pumapunku, the the consensus is that this was supposed to just be a facade for the most part, to give the sense of awe during these pilgrimages. Uh, these people were, were um, uh, really into show for, for these things, and what they would use them for are processional things. So people would get basically really high and they would um they would be led through a particular uh designated walkway with this stuff right and and that's how that's just what they did at this particular temple and it's uh it was done in a lot of different temples there's one nearby that also has this sunken temple motif and things like that the i would say that those little slots on either side um were probably consistent more with the other things at pumapunku that have a great deal the, the architecture at pumapunku is incredibly slotted. Um, it's a, it's a big puzzle piece, and they 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 connected things together that uh, to each stone had like a little slot like that they would connect other things. If you look at the other stones of Pumapunku, it becomes apparent that they were put together like a you know a puzzle or something like that. Right, that's the motif. Yeah. Well, I wasn't uh, too sure on the uh, the stones being inserted in, inserted into the wall anyway, but just as it being a gateway was really interesting to me and. And uh, the also, I'm sorry to be so vague since I can't get on the computer right now. But the one I was talking about on the on the cliff side, I think it was in Peru, where the the slotted gold disc went into. Did did you ever find out what I was talking about there? Uh, no, I didn't find that out. Um, are you talking about perhaps the not the Mayan ring, the ball game, or anything like that? No. No. No, I, I'm afraid I don't know what that one is, but uh, but if you find excuse me, if you find out uh, you know it's it's designation or how people call it or whatever, I'll look it up and and see if I've run across it before. And yeah. also the same thing with the J- Japanese thing. I, I think that's something I just recently looked into, um, but I would know if I if I saw exactly what it was. Right. If, if it was these these cave paintings, perhaps of that. 
Anyways, um, but yeah, we could talk about the pictures of of uh, vimanas and other things in in ancient cultures. The the vimana thing is a pretty interesting deal, but most of what ancient aliens says about it is easily dismissed because they're quoting from a probably 1952, but it it could be as early as 1918, but no earlier than 1918. Um, a channeled text that is a text that was uh, dictated from the spirit world, presumably. And that's where they get, got most of what they present as a really ancient document. And this most ancient document is now, you know, kind of whatever. And 90% of the stuff they say about Vermonas is actually from a 1952 book. And it reads like it's from 1952. It's like one of these things where the technology is like so outdated, like they're using propellers. Like this spaceship has 15 propellers. Right. You know, kind, of, like, kind of like a uh, Leonardo da Vinci yeah. sketch or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but there are some some real genuine vimanas in the Bhagavad Gita and things like that. But um, most of that stuff is really, really late. And it was the palaces of the gods that were flying and they developed. You can actually see the development of them over over the course of time. They they started out always having, you know, wheels and things. But as it progressed, they they lost the wheels. You can kind of watch the progression. So, I mean, yes, they are, in fact, depicting flying things in, in, in late Vimanas, but you can watch how they progress, and it becomes a whole lot less interesting as you do that. Right. Yeah. Those those three. Uh, I'm glad you could answer those for me because you know I just haven't, I guess, had the time or interest to look those up really and find out more about them. And I know that you have done the research on them. So, Chris, um, one thing interesting too uh, that you point out about the, the uh, I believe it's the Vimana Kashastra or something that that's the title of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. is that it's 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 channeled information, right? It is channeled information that is it was uh, you know a spirit that gave it to a very modern person during some sort of seance or whatever you would call it. I think I know what you're talking about, Japanese UFO cave painting things. Um, and I did look into this pretty recently. It's got it looks like a classic flying saucer, and it's got dots on the bottom of it. Is that the one? Uh, I think I think that's it. Uh, from what I remember on the show, it looked like a piece of parchment or something like that. But I, I, you could be right. It, they could have uh, made a, a a glyph of it or something. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, just to make a long story short with that one, I think that if you look at that in context, it, it's it's actually in the scene of like hunting, and there's. There is a whole bunch of animals and, and odd shapes and stuff. The idea is that these things are supposedly in the sky. But when you look at this thing in context, you know, there are animals on top of it. And, you know, it's clearly not depicting these things. I mean, in the sky, whatever they are, they're they're not in the sky. Um, so they're gra- ground level things. And you can see, look at the other images in this thing. I think that uh, it becomes clear that nothing really in this particular one it could be taken out of context and say, look at this, it must mean something because they're all just all over the board. Uh, there are, of course, re- actual, when you, what the things you can make out are, are what looks like a, perhaps an elephant or a sheep, and there's definitely a horse there, and that's perhaps a bison, but, you know, there's pretty mundane things. But, you know, the thing about this, the, the sort of classic UFO flying saucer disc, it, it's interesting to see how that developed in the modern culture, because it, it really came from that one guy at, at the Roswell that, that drew a picture of this thing. And he called it a flying saucer. Flying, but, but really what he drew was a wing, you know, like a, 
you know, like a kind of like how how should I say the modern um, uh, the bat- the B three the stealth yeah, yeah. right and, B, and he B4. he drew that but everybody called it a saucer and, and really for the next but but before that the reason what Ros- Roswell was so interesting is is that you know it had gone around too I mean people were talking about flying saucers and stuff like that and anyway. You could see that in movies and stuff all around that era. There, every sci-fi movie was something to do with a flying saucer, and it always had the flying saucer, you know? And I think that we're probably dealing more with a pop culture icon with that saucer shape than we are anything, you know, for real. I don't know if you've ever seen the take of people like Guy Malone on that issue or Mike Heiser, but I tend to think it was a cover-up, but a cover-up of Project Paperclip. Um, but that's a whole other issue, I guess. Yeah, we've had Guy on the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you, Chris, about uh, something that's not in the film, and that's something that's always very intrigued me, and that is the uh, Dogon serious mystery. Sure. A lot of people have been asking about the Dogon thing. I posted a blog on that. Uh, one of the first blogs that I posted actually was on the Dogon. Uh, it's called The Serious Mystery. That's at ancientaliensdebunk.com slash blog. Let me try to open it up here. Uh, basically, the serious mystery or the Dogon thing is that the this African tribe, believe you know, supposedly knew that there were that Sirius was uh, that there was is not just one bright star, but it had a companion star, and in fact, some other stars that were part of that system. They, they apparently knew this before anybody had the you know potential to know it, and it's supposedly part of their culture and their their rituals and stuff like that. So that's kind of the main thing. But uh, how could they possibly know this unless they were given this information by, you know, the gods, which I think that they, you know, in the, when the story is getting told, they usually say, and that's what, excuse me, that's what they say. They were given this information by the gods. Now, here's the issue. This is uh, a situation which uh, is entirely based off a study that was done by one particular anthropologist who, by the way, it was right at the time when the sort of Western world had just figured this thing out about Sirius. Like the Western world's scientific world was, I, I wouldn't say in a buzz because I don't think it was that exciting to them, but they did just figure it out. And so this, this thing happened when the news got back to the Western world. This African tribe knows about this thing because this anthropologist went there and he found this out. It was a really sort of timely sort of thing because, hey, we just found that out. And you're telling us these guys, how could they do it? Now, we learn about this, this guy's methods a little bit more. Um, I'll read from, I'm going to read real quick from an article because I think it explains it a little better. Um, it says, by the time Temple had published the second edition of The Serious Mystery in 1998, the whole question of the Dogon's apparently inexplicable knowledge of Sirius had been blown apart. No one had questioned Gural and Dieterlin's findings until the early 1990s. Gural and Dieterling are the guy who did the initial uh, anthropo- uh, you know, report that said, hey, these guys believe in this stuff. So these are the early guys. And nobody questioned them for decades and decades until the early 1990s. And this is where the problem for the hypothesis began. In 1991, the anthropologist Walter Van Beek undertook fieldwork among the Dogon, hoping to find evidence for their knowledge of Sirius. As the earlier authors had indicated that around 15% of the adult males were initiated into the Sirius lore, this ought to have been a relatively easy task. However, Van Beek was unable to find anyone who knew about Sirius B. As ought to have been obvious from the outset, Gural and Dieterlin's reliance on a single informant 
Ogu Tamali, who, by the way, he was a blind guy. I don't know if that matters, but they relied everything on this one blind guy that told them all this stuff. So, so the, as it should have been obvious, their reliance on the single informant severely compromises the validity of their data, but it gets worse. The Dogon themselves do not agree that Sirius Tolo is Sirius. It is the bright star that appears to announce the beginning of a festival, which some identify with Venus, while others claim it is invisible. Tupolo uh, is not Sirius B, as it sometimes approaches Sigutolo. He's going into details here, making it brighter, which is sometimes more distant when it appears. I'm going to do one more thing here, uh, read one abstract from this paper. This study of the Dogon of Mali asks whether the texts produced by Garal uh, depict a society that is recognizable to their to the researcher and to the Dogon today, and answers the question more or less in the negative. The picture of the Dogon religion presented in these guys' um, paper proved impossible to replicate in the field, even as the shadowy remnant of a largely forgotten past. The reason for this is suggested lie in the particular field situation of Gurali's research, including features of the ethnographer's approach, the political setting, and the experience, uh, and, the experience and predictions of the informants, and the values of the Dogon culture. So they couldn't reproduce it even today they they deny that that's what they believe and if you look into the details of what this guy who wrote the book the serious mystery said that they believed even he is with his bad information is not telling you a great deal of information about what they do believe in order to make it sound a little bit better this, this issue is one that you can do a lot of research on there is a lot of technical stuff about it and yeah. I would encourage you to to check this out on the – there's links to it on the blog here called The Serious Mystery at AncientAliensDebunk.com. Well, very interesting. Now, that's that's one that I've always found found very fascinating. And it's it's one that's uh, highly, highly debatable too. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that you wanted to ask, Luke, or uh, go on? I'm still thinking up a question. Chris? <laughs> Well, that, you know, and to, to also Heiser goes into some detail on the yeah. serious mystery thing. And he, he mentions that, uh, that, that uh, he, he shows that it's certainly possible for somebody to have seen this with the naked eye. And he goes into that at some length. But it's, as I mentioned, it's not necessary if they can't, if the Dogon aren't admitting it and, and nobody is, is, can reproduce this. And the way that they said that is like, hey, we can't even prove that this was a belief in their ancient past. Like we tried to, we tried to even, even if they like believed it once in their lifetime and we couldn't find evidence for that. So there was some funny business going on with the original data collection and it may not have been the fault of the people that had collected that data, but the fact that they relied on one guy who, as it says there in an article, his experiences may have played a part and his experiences may have included talking to somebody who just had recently found that they discovered that Sirius was, you know, in that recent time, a big kind of water cooler discussion thing. I think one of the themes here, Chris, too, is that you have, um, as in the case of the Dogon now, as in the case of the Maya, as in the case of the ancient Egyptians, uh, we're dealing with, you know, ancient religions, we're dealing with ancient spiritualities, and what the ancient astronaut theory uh, is trying to do is to explain those in a materialistic way when you just it's like they can't get their almost get their head around the fact that there's a that there's a spiritual element to what they're dealing with like yeah. the nazca lines is a, is a good example too which we haven't even touched on yeah that's a good observation the ancient astronaut theory is essentially very naturalistic they they 
they don't believe in the supernatural, so they would have to describe a lot of things as having to be just aliens with great technology that did all this stuff. Right. But but most of the time, in, in it's really not necessary except for things that probably you know like the Nephilim and, and other issues like that 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 in my opinion is not possible to to write off as in some naturalistic way um, because it's just too consistent uh, and the same things with a lot of the other issues in the ancient texts it's, it's it's ridiculously consistent for example the in Australia there are these pictures that are often used in, for the ancient astronaut hypothesis of these these this cave paintings that look exactly like gray heads I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like a bunch of these gray heads. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, if you if you asked the Aborigines what those are, they'll tell you all about them. They actually repaint those every year. They can, so they're always doing something different with them. They've added eyelashes now and whatever. They're actually, if you see the whole body, they're nothing like a gray. They're really stocky and all this other stuff. But um, what they are are they are spiritual beings that were that never came down they never interacted with them according to their legends they are just the gods basically of the rain that were integral in the creation of the world and and if you dig deeper into that you'll find that they they actually were here they create you know the part of the creation of of people then there was a flood because of something that went wrong with that uh, the flood wiped everybody away. You know, one family escapes. There's there's animals. There's even a rainbow at the end of the flood in that one. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, nobody wants to go too deep into this stuff because they're going to end up finding something that uh, not just uh, offends their, their naturalistic worldview, but starts to look like the Bible may have been true all along. Even these aborigines that are supposed to be separated from the world uh, in Australia have one of these very consistent flood legends, not just the belief that a flood happened. But the belief of flood and these little issues like rainbows afterwards, is, you know, and these and, you know, all these other things that are just too mysterious to write off. Well, let me ask you, too, Chris, um, you know, before we get into the subject of the Nephilim, which is really interesting. But um, it seems to me that a lot of the things that the ancient astronauts theorists talk about. Um, could also be easily explained with the existence of a advanced civilization in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is your take on that? Right, I think that's perceptive. I think um, I think that uh, uh, Philip Coppins just came out with a book that sort of yeah. saying that. And my issue with that is the same issue with the ancient astronaut theory. Show me the proof. Because right now, the things that they that are usually presented with that, I listened to him sort of try to put his case out, and I was, to say the least, not very impressed. But what I would normally say is things that would be evidence of that. Is, it, the best evidence that I know of is stuff like the Sphinx erosion, water erosion issue that uh, people like Robert Schock have put yeah. in and, and John Anthony West, or the issues of, of the so-called Yanaguni underwater monuments. Those are the kinds of things that people put forth that I think are supposedly the best evidence out there certainly promote and both of those things are just easily debunked in my opinion um the if you want me to talk more about them i I will but the but the issue is that i think that what i've seen for the evidence is not is not convincing and the same so my problem with it is not necessarily that i think it couldn't happen or i couldn't accommodate it it's just that you know what i'm seeing is not is not evidence um let me ask you what, in your opinion, do you think that the uh, pyramids at Giza were used for? You know, 
Um, before I did this film, I would have told you a completely different thing. But after I did this, I would tell you that I think that the the Egyptologists have it right on this one. And if you have you seen the um, the section of the film about this with uh, with Jean Pierre's theory being suggested? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's interesting because if you go into detail, I unfortunately didn't have much time to go into a lot of the detail uh, as far as the other things in the pyramid. But for example. The Great Pyramid is the only pyramid that has internal chambers. The other two are, are, are dug into the bedrock, and that, so therefore they don't need to have any extra anything done because they, they don't to support the weight of those thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of rock above it So because the tombs are dug into the bedrock. Now, the Great Pyramid, whoever did that decided that they wanted their tomb inside the pyramid, which automatically caused a ton of engineering nightmares. The, the whole sort of thing about the, the huge granite beams above the king's chamber with the apex at the top, that is exactly to distribute the weight away from the king's chamber. Uh, completely necessary because this guy wanted to be buried in the middle of the thing. You can actually see the, the, this ingenious plan to distribute the weight, not just to distribute the weight on either side, but to do it in such a way to ba- basically make these fail-safes. It, it's, it's unbelievably brilliant. And the Grand Gallery as this freight elevator thing, it, it, which the evidence is there. I mean, these things, I mean, you can see the grease and the scratch marks on either side of this thing. It makes everything make sense. The reason why the so-called step is worn where the ropes would be, it is just over and over. The three chambers in the pyramid, for instance, um, are explainable in that the, the first subterranean chamber, get, keep in mind that this thing was built over the course of whatever it was, 22 years or whatever. And at each stage, they had to be ready by Egyptian law to bury the king within a certain amount of time frame. They always had to have a tomb ready to go. And so the subterranean chamber was quickly abandoned. It's hardly even hollowed out because they quickly realized they weren't going to need it. King's doing good, and we've already got the queen's what, what we call the queen's chamber built, which was um, going to be his, his tomb had they needed it because they needed to put him in a tomb within a certain amount of time frame. So the pyramid got done before, you know, the king's chamber got done before he died, and so it was, it was necessary. Uh, to use the other two, and that's why they're not developed. So the fact that we don't see, you know, any bodies in there and the, the kind of things people say, you know, no hieroglyphics or whatever, you know, that, I don't feel like that's a really good uh, explanation for for that. I mean, you are looking at a sarcophagus in there, you know, for for one, that is that's important. And uh, you know, people say a lot of things about that sarcophagus. You know, it's impossible to hollow it out. It needs diamond trip, this and that. Actually. It was definitely carved using copper and sand. And I know that because the the side of that thing that you can't see actually has a big gaping gash where the person sawing messed up and was going in the wrong direction for a long time. So he had to stop and go in the right direction. And in order to hide it, they put it up close to the to the wall. So um, so, yeah, I think it's just it's just a tomb. It's not easy to work with a laser diamond drill, though. Yeah, those things get hot. <laughs> Um, have you heard, uh, so far this has just been, uh, kind of a rumor, uh, I haven't seen any proof of it, but have you heard of, like, a large chamber underneath it all? And a large, uh, underground, like, oval-shaped room? Yeah, I think that's the room under the Sphinx. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. supposed to open up or something. Right. Like, Edgar Cayce stuff. Right, yeah, Edgar Uh, Cayce's thing. uh, Um, as far as I know, the, there is something under the Sphinx, 
but it um, it was like that. There was a tomb, Zahi Was, you know, there's a special done on it or whatever. Um, but as far as I know, that didn't end up going anywhere. Um, I know there's subterranean stuff around there. Uh, I think what's his name? Uh, some guy recently found some, you know, entrances that are some caves and stuff down there. But so so I wouldn't be surprised if there was something, you know, awesome, you know, down there and some subterranean things. But I think as far as what Casey described, we aren't seeing evidence of that at, at the moment. I want to briefly touch on the uh, the Nephilim and uh, what they were and how if they fit in with uh, with all this that we're talking about tonight. Okay. Well, um, you know, I think that the Nephilim are, I take a pretty standard approach to them. Genesis 6, you know, they, you know, as far as the Nephilim knew, of course, we're talking about the sons of God at this point, which are basically angels. You know, it says that they found the women of the earth fair. They came down, had, you know, had sex with them. They produced offspring, which were giants, men of renown, etc. I think that as far as they knew, that's what it was. They just, they, they were motivated by lust, mostly. And uh, I think that there was ultimately a bigger plan uh, as with that. And Satan essentially enticed them to do that for his purposes, which I think ultimately resulted in the flood. And Satan's purposes, of course, was to try to completely corrupt the seed of man, having been, you know, prophesied that uh, the one who would crush his head would come from the seed of man. So his attempt was to to corrupt the bloodline of mankind with this Nephilim thing. But as far as their as far as their mindset, they were just it was just a lust thing. And that's the thing that we see in the ancient texts. You know, to be honest with you, we see both things with the sons of God and the Nephilim. And this hybridization event is so unbelievably consistent, you know, and not just that the angels came down, had sex, produced giants, but that the original angels got imprisoned in, the, in an underworld prison and that they, they're, a flood happened as a result of this hybrid, hybridization. You know, it's not just in the Bible, but little elements of that are everywhere in the ancient world. And... Not just, you know, in the Near East with the Sumerians, obviously, and, and others like that, but even as far as, like, South America is a great example. Viracocha breathed life into giant stones, and they created giants. And so he didn't like them, so he sent a flood to, to destroy them and then made normal-sized people and then scattered them all over the earth. I mean, it's, it's basically exact same thing. I think for, for just between, uh, I, I think that Viracocha is a paganized version of Noah, and that's why he came out of the sea. You know, these guys are just ancestors of either Shem, Ham, or Japheth, or whoever went out that way. And they're, you know, that's why Viracocha has a beard and, you know, looks like a white guy. And, you know, or, or rather a Hebrew guy. I think I say white guy just because they didn't have beards like that. But anyway, so my point is, is that their whole world remembers this thing of the, of the hybridization. And somebody asked me today, so so you're going to say that because the whole world, you know, believes these things, that it's evidenced in mythology, are you going to tell me that dragons and, and, and vampires and stuff are real too because it's in mythology? And, you know, to an extent, I had to sort of pause there for a second. I was like, well, I mean, actually dragons, you know, I don't know how consistent that they were, but it is, it's how consistent are they? I mean, is every culture everywhere always talking about dragons? Because if they are then we can reasonably assume that they probably weren't 
just making it up. I mean, there's something that we need to follow up on there. And it could be, you know, maybe uh, the tail end of the dinosaurs or whatever. And, you know, who knows what. But, you know, vampires or whatever, that's obviously just trying to sort of, that's not a consistent theme in, in mythology or whatever. It's just, so it doesn't count. Anyway, that's something to go on there. <laughs> that actually reminds me of the uh, favorite uh, episode that I saw of Ancient Aliens. Actually, I saw the commercial for it where they had a an animation of uh, flying saucers shooting dinosaurs with lasers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the History Channel at its finest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, we, when doing research for this, I, I actually thought about making that a big segment of this. When I, at, at one point, I thought I was going to talk a lot more about the macro uh, things that they were saying about this and the implications that they were saying. And, and sure. one of the consistent things that they do is is make the aliens be these these catastrophic, you know, agents of all cat- catastrophe. And they are, you know, the ones we should fear and, and these kinds of things. It, you, somebody also wrote me re- recently, it was, had a good point. He said, if you really took all of the things that Ancient Aliens says about aliens, you're dealing with a seriously schizophrenic, you know, uh, uh, re- you know, they can't decide which technology to use. They're killing us. They're saving us. They're, you know. Yeah. And something different every episode that contradicts the previous one. They're responsible for the Black Death and yeah, <laughs> and nine eleven. <laughs> yeah, I think that might have been. Was that one of them, Chris? Oh, before we go, Chris, because uh, we're almost out of time with the interview. But um, before we go, what's next for you? Uh, what What are you going to be working on next? Uh, where do you go from here? Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that, and I don't really know what to tell you. I want to do, as far as you know, feature-length documentaries. Right now, I am I am waffling back and forth between uh, something on sleep paralysis and uh, hallucinogenics like DMT and excuse me, ayahuasca and psilocybin and things like that, and showing both of these things that I want to prove it that these things are they're dealing with is demonic are demonic entities and that we could know uh, based on just standard anthropology what their nature is what their motivations are because far too many people that are in contact with these things uh, whether it be mostly in the psychedelic community they are just trying to jump up and down and prove to everybody that hey we're having real supernatural experiences stop telling me i'm not having a real supernatural experience i'm really talking to somebody that they're excited about the fact that something extraordinary is happening but they're not asking Anybody is asking the questions, how do we know these things are telling the truth? Is it possible that they could have other motivations? What, what, what kind of epistemology can we, can we ask ourselves about the nature of their motivations or their, their – and I think that anthropology gives us such a great, uh, a great uh, understanding of their motivations. So, for example, shamanism, shamanism they always – is glorified nowadays, but it was never glorified in the past. It was something that one guy in the tribe did because he knew the, these things were evil – he would go contact them to get the information about which leaves to mix together or whatever, but he didn't want anybody else doing it because it it wasn't about enlightenment. It was contacting an evil spirit that was deceptive and that was that would ultimately destroy him. So I think that there's some real good science that we could bring to the table and try to discover what's happening with this demonic realm. I think it makes for a very interesting uh, second time to get you on. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say so. And Chris, you know, we didn't even mention, uh, you know, just in passing, kind of your trip to Africa, um, uh, what you did there. 
Yeah, I had a, spent two months in Africa doing mostly work with cell phones, um, getting Bluetooth Bibles and Bluetooth concordances on cell phones of pastors there, as well as doing some video projects uh, for promotion for a really great ministry there called uh, Seek Suba Environmental Education of Kenya. And that's pretty much it. I got to, you know, in fact, one, one thing that ties into what I was just saying, the, the witch doctors there are basically the modern-day shaman. And, yeah. you know, they, it's, no, it's no good thing to, to be in contact with these spirits. And, you know, one, one lady who all she wanted was school fees, she went to the witch doctors, the spirits got in contact with her or whatever, and she actually had this experience where the spirit said, oh, yeah, we'll get you your school fees, but you need to kill your bro- I think it was your brother or something like that. You need to sacrifice him. So that stuff's still going on today. But in America, they're a little too uh, – they know us a little too well, so they're a little more coy on, on how they get us to do what they want. But uh, there, it's pretty wide op- open. Everybody just knows it exists, and so they don't have to hide very much. It's funny you mention that because you were in Kenya, correct? Right. Well, in, in Uganda, which I believe is right next door. Yeah. The, there's a big wave going on right now of people that want to be rich of like paying a, a witch doctor to sacrifice children and burn them for them. Mm. I we, uh, we were reading about that and uh, I think the BBC News reported on it. Wow, I need to check that out. That would be good. Inf- yeah, for it's the pretty crazy. Research. Uh, how do you feel about the, the prophets in the Bible on uh, pharmacia or, or uh, psychedelics, you know, writing the scriptures? Sure. You know, the issue with that to me is divination, contacting the spirits, doing anything like that that would fall under that was punishable by death in the Old Testament. And if they were really doing that, it was well outside of the bounds of of their religion. The the if and so what I'm trying to say is that there's no there's no evidence of of that in their in any kind of record that we have of their lives. If anything, we see these people being pious, trying to to avoid any kind of intoxication and these kinds of things. The things that people put forward, particularly Jean, Jean Marco Allegro and, and others, are are insane to me. For for example, he he proposes that I have to make a long story short that the Sumerian language is the sort of mother tongue of all languages, something that no linguist today would would buy. And again, this is another issue that when he wrote, it was such a young study that you can say just about anything. And he got so many of the words wrong that he claimed to know that that had to do with mushrooms. And he was trying to say that, therefore, the Hebrew words are actually about mushrooms. So all that stuff, his main premise is wrong about that. And the idea that like mushroom, like we can find out what the Christians were into because there's pictures of mushrooms in a 14th century church makes no sense because you're dealing with probably no matter what you found in a 14th century church it's not going to have any bearing on the origins of christianity it's at least 1400 years past the events and what's more likely happening there if they indeed are uh, mushrooms and those kinds of things is that the artist that they commissioned to do it in that small town in france probably was doing mushrooms and probably thought it was funny to 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 draw mushrooms on there commission to do it that makes a whole lot more sense than anything else yeah. um so we have you know what we we have a lot of representations of christian um and in jewish values and ancient texts of their enemies so and they're always saying these guys are like taking vows of piousness and stuff like that and you know that's the kind of thing romans would say about it 
Well, Chris, uh, can you tell um, our listeners uh, before we go, can you tell them where they can see your works and uh, and uh, get to know more about you and how to contact you? Absolutely. Uh, you can go, I think the best place for this discussion is through the website ancientaliensdebunked.com. And you can also, uh, as I mentioned, I've got a blog there where I talk a lot about the other issues that I didn't cover in the film. I uh, just posted one on Coral Castle and a few other things, so... Check that out, and you can also go to my main website, which is NowhereToRunRadio.com. Excellent. Well, Chris, uh, we want to thank you for coming on, and uh, we're going to close out here, but stay on the line for us. Okay. All right, and uh, if you guys are good, we're going to go to break, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. And we are back with Conspiranormal. Yeah, yeah. What's up, Luke? Uh, still here. Still sitting here. Yeah, what would you think of... Uh... What do you think of the interview with Chris White? I think uh, out of out of all the people we've spoken to, that he's done tons and tons and tons of research. Yeah, and like you said, he he doesn't sleep. I, I'm not sure <laughs> he if he does he or must not. not. I think he, he must just not. takes caffeine pills and just stays up all night. Right, just he's probably got a library yeah. bookshelf to the ceiling. He's very dedicated. He just has just I I, I can't even describe but just sometimes of uh, the conversations that you have and just what he pulls out of his mind yeah you know and he's very dedicated i think to finding any kind of uh and i can't i can't even recall the correct time to get to my interview (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) that didn't go too well Uh, it didn't that's why we can't have nice things Luke. (laughs) (laughs) but you you can go to the you can go back to the stoner skater place anytime they probably already forgot anyway yeah they probably forgot about me too so well, uh, chris uh had was telling us right when we were taking a little break there uh he was telling us about a little um uh experience with sleep paralysis that he had and chris if you want to talk about it well uh i actually um thought i was going to be murdered honestly because really? uh yeah it was very it was very scary because i remember i didn't lock the door before i went to bed and um, I woke up. It was it was roughly four thirty in the morning, uh, give or take. Oh, so you didn't actually lock the door. No, I didn't lock okay. the door. The front door right. was unlocked. I of course, you haven't that. had a doorknob in like. No, no, no. Like, I have a doorknob. Oh, now. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so so it was unlocked, and and I felt a presence above me, and and I opened my eyes, and there was a as very it was a very dark figure with with what looked like a black hoodie on. I, I could I couldn't make out a face um, or anything, you know. It's it's pitch black in my room, you know. I don't sleep with the TV on or anything. So, um, but and he just stood there, and and I couldn't move. And there was no there was no physical contact. There was no there were no words. It was just I could hear him breathing and and judging judging. I'm judging by the figure uh, that it was that was a male, by the way. Huh. Um, or you had the feeling, you think? Right, yeah. yeah. It was a very dominant presence, if that makes any sense. Um, and like I said, I just couldn't move, and it was probably the scariest five minutes of my life at this point. Um, but I lost consciousness after those five minutes and woke up um, at a, some time later and, and was fine. And sure enough, you know, I walked, in, I, walked to, I walked to my foyer, and the door is unlocked. And, you know, but it didn't didn't look like anything was taken or anything so um but it's happened before really yes it's, it's happened before um it's very rare for me though um but i do f- i don't feel like i feel like it was one of those things where it where it could have very well been supernatural I mean, huh. did you see um 
Did you? Was it? Was the? Was it at the foot of your bed? No, like I was sleeping um, to the side of my bed, closest or furthest from the wall. Okay. And he was standing right next to me. Ooh. Yeah, and then, like I said, I like the first thought I had was I'm about to get shanked. Oh. So you 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 thought it was a real person? I thought it was walked a, in your house and right, was gonna right gonna kill you. Yes, oh. that that's exactly how I thought. I was like, why not my roommate? He's like a whole doorway, and he is definitely worse of a person than I am. Wow, that is crazy. Uh, that's something that is um you know have you have you you've heard of the old hag syndrome? And people wake up, they have sleep paralysis, and they think that there was an old woman sitting on their chest. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's kind of a more of a common thing, really, than you would think. But uh, you know that it's very interesting. Uh, uh, we had someone that you and I work with, Chris, that uh, actually woke up in the middle of the night, like about three o'clock in the morning. I'm not gonna say who it is, and nobody would know anyway. But he does listen to the show, but. He he saw a uh, a black figure sitting in the tree looking at him with red eyes, and uh, before that he had been joking around about conjuring demons and how he didn't believe in any of that stuff. And, yep, I know and then all of a sudden, now. and then all of a sudden, you know, this happens to him. Uh, he told me too he'd had a dream where somebody was pointing at him. Uh, I think actually that was what it was. Somebody was pointing at him in the dream, and he woke up, and then he saw this. And he saw that there was a dog, like a dog was actually barking at this this figure in the tree. So, hmm. uh, you know, I thought that was interesting. It, it, it reminded me of that story, which you just said. Yeah. Like kind of like these, these, black, these black figures. And people will see shadow people, uh, as we talked about with the Tennessee Ray Chasers last time. <clears throat> yeah. That's what, uh, one of the things they were talking about, shadow people. And, uh, yeah, uh, pretty frightening. But... Uh, Luke, before we go, you wanted to talk a little bit about the Hurricane Sandy thing. What, what you think happened there? Yeah. Um, so, so I've always believed in uh, geoengineering. You know, I, I believe it's been going on. You know, the first thing I caught my interest about all of this was the treaty in uh, what seventy five, seventy nine, something like that. I can never it remember. Been, dates, it may but... have been later than that. We we should do a show about that. Maybe you can gather some information. We can right. do a show just about that kind of thing. Right. Well, I, I saw the treaty uh, that was talking about you know uh, countries not being able to use uh, weapons of weather against each other. Yeah. And uh, it also included uh, you know earthquakes in, in the treaty too. I believe like generating earthquakes. Um, so I did some I did some more research on it after you know finding out about the treaty, and I've got this big presentation, college presentation, and all kinds of fancy science, you know, yeah, a lot, lot of long words I can't pronounce, but uh, I I read <laughs> over the entire thing, kind of skipped the parts that you know I didn't understand, <laughs> but right. but uh, it looks like aerosol dumped into uh, the edge of the storm increases its mass and then some kind of chemical dumped into the water cools the water and controls the path of the storm now this isn't this is an actual science and it's not just from this one presentation like you can find this all over the place and there's experimentation going on for the past several decades with this weather type of weather modification now the earthquake generation device like you won't find as much about that's suppressed you know that's 
deep. Yeah, that'll mess everything up. Right, that's that's a big deal. I used to really be skeptical of weather modification. Uh, it was one of those things in the 90s that you heard about, and just people, uh, you just kind of thought those people were nuts, mm-hmm. um, really. And now uh, it's becoming more and more realistic. Yeah, that and chemtrails was something that, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to. I always thought it was kind of crazy talk. But now you really have to wonder. Um, it just, I, I think maybe the technology is there. And, you know, they, they, do, they have talked about during the 2008 Olympics, you know, the Chinese were trying to make sure that uh, they had clear skies over the Olympics or they're doing some, like, lo- in a localized area, yeah. doing um, weather modification. And then also um, in Dubai now, in the United Arab Emirates, they're doing the same kind of thing where right. they're trying to reclaim land from the sea. Yeah. So there's, in, in, in like, a local area... They actually are doing it. Yeah. And, and that's actually in the news. Uh-huh. Right. Well, that's what Alex Jones says the, anyway. This, yeah, that, it, it is happening. Um, it's, it's just, it's just <laughs> recently that all of the scientific information about it surfaced, you know, thanks to the internet. And, yeah. And you can even find Wikipedia just admits it just straight out. Yeah, this is going on. Weather mod research is going on and it's active. It's an active community, you know. Between HARP, the HARP, yeah, that's you, what they're for. Yeah, that's their research. HARP. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, I forgot the other agency. It's on my Facebook Noah? status. I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who just recently bought a bunch of like hollow point bullets? Is that the same agency? Ago. Oh, that was one of them. And Homeland Security. Yeah, that's real comforting. We're getting a little too conspiratorial for Chris over here. But anyway, uh, tomorrow is election day. Of course, this will be posted after Election Day, um, after um, uh, Gary Johnson is elected president. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, I-, I would say, you know, everybody needs to go out and vote, no matter who you're going to vote for. I-, I actually wrote Luke Luke in for a state senator. Uh, yeah. Uh, Luke Reed approves this message. <laughs> I wrote in Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> He can beat you up and tell you about Jesus after. I was, I was telling I was telling Adam that hopefully everybody will waste their vote quotations on a third party candidate. Yeah, it'd be I'm, more suitable. I'm all about third party, but uh, Chris has got his Obama shoes on. I think he's ready to go vote tomorrow. So, uh, what are you talking about? You get your, you get your Obama phone. And, oh, uh, oh, Obama phone. Obama phone. I'm get my Obama phone and my Obamacare and my <laughs> whatever else Obama will give me. No, not really. Obama chain. <laughs> I'm gonna get my Obama swag on. What you know about that? <laughs> I think we're gonna. I think uh, you guys are ready. We're calling tonight, and right, uh, yeah. just uh, Chris, you want to take us out? Sure. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to Conspiranormal. Have a great night. That's right.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.